The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. Oh, how we miss meeting together and pray that that can happen soon. But even, even in that sorrow and that grief and that waiting, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that we have God's Word and I'm thankful that we have this moment to set our, our minds on what he has to say. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. This morning our text is going to be 1 John 2. We're going to go 28 all the way to chapter 3 verse 10. So again, we're continuing our study through 1 John. We'll be looking at 1 John 2 verse 28 all the way down to chapter 3 verse 10. Let's hear God's word. 1 John 2.28, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. We all know what it's like to face an intimidating challenge. And I think you'd all agree so much of life is a challenge right now. We also know what it's like to face a challenge with confidence or not. When we face a challenge with no confidence, we're shaky, we're not ready, we're unprepared, we're overwhelmed. And of course, there can be such a thing as false confidence. I've had that a thousand times. 
That usually means I'm going to get exposed as I crash and burn. But real confidence means you're ready. You're prepared. You have courage based on truth, based on experience. And I think we could agree, confidence like that, confidence for facing any challenge is a wonderful thing and a joy all its own. I bring this up because to this morning we're thinking about ultimate confidence. The reason we're thinking about this is there's a moment coming that will be the most exposing, overwhelming moment the world will ever see. And let me tell you that when that moment comes, even coronavirus and all its implications will look like nothing. Each one of us will face this moment. And some of us, amazingly, can have confidence even for that. So what is this moment? And how can we possibly have confidence for us for it? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So just as review, we're, con- we're continuing our study through 1 John. Uh, this is a letter the Apostle John wrote to a group of churches. And he writes them so that they can have confidence, so that they can have assurance, so that they can know that they truly know the real God. They, John wants to give clarity so that God's people can have confidence that they know God. So as, we, as we've seen, this clarity comes from four criterion or tests. These categories need to be alive in your life, awake in your life, in order for you to have confidence that you know God. Let's review those quickly. Number one, the first test is the doctrinal test. It's what you believe about who Jesus is and what he's done. We looked at that in detail last week, didn't, didn't we? There was this, uh, as my free friend Habib says, this three-legged stool. One leg about who Jesus is is he's truly God. He's God in the flesh, the eternal son of God. The second leg on that stool is he's truly human. He became a man. Uh, the third leg on that school is he's God's promised king who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and in him we can find salvation. So that first test is what you believe about Jesus. The second test is what you honestly believe about your sin and your need for Jesus to save you. We've seen over and again, real Christians know they're real sinners and have a real need for Christ. The third test is your practical love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the test of your practical love for other believers. We're going to look at that in more detail next week. But this week we're looking at, uh, from another angle, this fourth test. Your love for God as shown in your desire to obey his word. In fact, in this morning in the text we're looking at today, we're, we're seeing a section of this letter that kind of wrap all these themes together, weaves them together, and even, I think, gives a foundation for all of them. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this text, 1 John 2.28 to 3.10, in four parts. And I think this is what we're going to see. Number one, we're going to find ultimate confidence for the ultimate moment. In other words, there I want to see, like, what is this moment John is talking about? And what would it mean to have confidence in that moment? After we unpack that ultimate moment and that ultimate confidence, we're going to see how we can have that confidence. And there's three ingredients to that. 
Number one, confidence comes from abiding. Number two, abiding flows from identity. And number three, identity shows itself in practice. So just to review, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find ultimate confidence for the ultimate moment. We're going to see that confidence comes from abiding. We're going to see abiding flows from identity. And then identity is going to lead to practice. And as we walk this road, as we work through these four kind of scenes or episodes, that adds up to giving us that ultimate confidence for that ultimate moment. So let's begin. Here we go. 1 John 2.28, we're thinking first about ultimate confidence. Again, in verse 28, John wrote, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what is this moment John has in his mind, this ultimate challenge, this incredibly intimidating moment where we'll need confidence? Did you see what it was? It's when he appears. The ultimate overwhelming moment will be the literal physical return of Jesus Christ. We remember Jesus came first as a servant, humble, meek. He lived a perfect life for us as our representative. He was so humble and obedient as to go to a cross to pay the price we deserve for all our sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns now at the right hand of the Father for our good. And one day he will return. And when he comes back, it won't be as a humble servant. It will be as a conquering king. He promised this. His apostles proclaimed this. When he comes, he's going to judge all people. He's going to renew his entire creation. So think with me about this moment, this overwhelming moment, where we will each stand before the exalted Jesus Christ, and have our lives measured according to perfect justice. In that moment, he will have perfect knowledge. He will see every motive, every thought, every word, every deed done and left undone. He will judge with perfect character. Our Lord is righteous. He loves what is right. He hates what is evil. And he's the only one with the resume to judge. He's the only one to live the perfect life. He'll judge with perfect knowledge, perfect character. Which means that for many, the hard truth is that there will be perfect wrath. Perfect wrath. John wrote, uh, the apostle, he wrote a gospel. We're going to refer to that. The Gospel of John. He wrote these letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. But, you know, John also wrote the Apocalypse, Revelation, where we get these incredible uh, images of uh, Jesus' reign, what's occurring now spiritually, and what it'll be like when he returns. And I want to take you, as we think of this ultimate moment, to this, uh, this picture of Jesus' return it's in Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Listen and imagine what this will be like. Revelation 6, 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And just pause for a moment. What on earth could make it seem like an avalanche was the preferred option? I mean, for many, being stuck under piles of rock and debris, buried alive would be the ultimate nightmare. And here we have everyone begging for it. Back to Revelation 6.16. They're calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand when Jesus returns? Who can stand when we're exposed to perfect knowledge and perfect justice? Friends, that's the moment John is thinking about when he says you can have confidence. You can have confidence for that moment to know that as majestic and terrifying as Jesus is, when he returns, you and he are on good terms. He knows you. You know him. And you don't have to shrink in shame, as verse 28 says. It's like you know the past and your sins, they're already taken care of. You know that there's no need to dread. You know that you lived a life knowing him. And that the accounts are balanced. You're reconciled. That in the overwhelming majesty and fear of that moment, somehow you have confidence even for that. I, I don't know what you think, but I think that's ultimate confidence. If you have confidence for that, what's the rest of life going to throw at you that you can't handle? This is ultimate confidence. This is what John is talking about. Confidence for the day of Christ's return. How do you get confidence like that to where it's not a, a false confidence, but it's based on truth. It's based on experience. You know that you know. You have assurance. How? Well, that's what we now want to discover. And we see in verse 28, as John begins here, the way to have confidence, John says, and now little children, verse 28, What's it say? Abide in him. We've looked at this several times before, but let's remember. What does it mean to abide? In John 15, Jesus used the example of um, a vine and a branch. So he says, abide in me, like a, like a branch is connected to a, a vine. So you see this, can, the idea of continual connection so that life flows, so there's relationship, there's intimacy, um, things are joined together. Abide in me, Jesus says. Abide in my love, Jesus says. Stay close, hold fast, be connected. Don't go anywhere else. Look right here. Stay right here. How do you know you're abiding with him? Well, we saw last week a huge aspect of abiding in Christ is to abide in the truth of who he is. Remember, there's all these false teachers trying to give you the same name of Jesus but fill it with different meaning. 
John says, no, stay the course on who Jesus is, truly God, truly man, promised king according to the scriptures. He lived a life of righteousness for you in your place. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Trust yourself to him. Abide in that gospel. That's how you abide in him. But there's more than that. Look at verse 29, 1 John 2, verse 29. Another way to know you're abiding in him, and you have to have this, 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who, what, practices righteousness has been born of him. So a key evidence that you're abiding in Jesus, number one, is believing the truth about him. Number two, practicing righteousness. What is righteousness? It's God's character as expressed in his word. We see that God loves and does what is good, and he hates what is evil. So, of course, if you're connected to him, if you know him, if you love him, you're going to practice righteousness. And here I think a, a sports illustration can help. By the way, do you remember what that is, sports? Do you remember? People used to be together and do things. Do you remember that? Um, and remember, people who care about their sport, what do they do to get better at their sport? They practice. So you want to get the form right. You want to get the technique right. You, you want to learn how to play the game right, and so you play it more. You practice more so that you can improve. You, you keep at it. And uh, the, no one, even the greatest of any athlete of any sport, ever made it to where they never made any mistakes, but they got better and better and better. Why? Because they practiced. Why? Because they wanted it. They wanted it. And that's what this is. And evidence that you abide in Jesus is that you want what he loves and so you practice it. So let's just remember where we've been so far. We want ultimate confidence for that ultimate moment. What's the ultimate moment? Jesus comes back. How do you have ultimate confidence? Well, it starts by abiding in him, staying connected to Christ in the truth that you believe and in the lifestyle that you practice, you gotta practice righteousness. So let's just pause here for a second. Um, how does that sound to you? If I said to you, hey, you can have confidence based on your practice of righteousness. Uh, it it kind of, it sets you back. I imagine two common perspectives I think people lean into here immediately when they hear things like, okay, you can have confidence for when you meet God based on how you've lived. Um, one attitude I'd call presumption. Some people say, hey, no problem, I'm a good person. I'm good. Uh, I'm a good person. And I kind of want to say, Re really? Do you remember Christ's perfect knowledge of your motives, of your thoughts, of your attitudes, what you've done and what you've left undone? I, I worry about the attitude of presumption there. But there's another attitude that's just in bad, as bad, and that's the attitude of despair. We hear, hey, uh, you can have confidence for Christ's return if you practice righteousness, and some of us go, that's impossible. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it. I'm not even close to his standard. There's no way. It's the attitude of despair. And so I think it's worth addressing these kind of uh, default um, attitudes people take towards this. 
And I think both perspectives are missing something. If your attitude is presumption, well, of course I'm good. You're missing your knowledge of God's law and your knowledge of yourself. It's, it's incomplete. I don't think it's, you're quite as good as you ascribe. But if, you're, if you tend towards despair, your view is also missing something. Your view of God is missing uh, what he does for his people. But in either attitude, presumption, hey, I'm good, it's no big deal, or despair, I can never do this. Each attitude, I think, and it's important to see this, each views righteousness as something done to earn God's acceptance. So one attitude says, oh, I can do something and God will owe me acceptance based on what I've done. I'll deserve it. The other other attitude says, I can never do enough for God to owe me acceptance, and so there's no hope for me. I can never know his love. And do you see in both of those attitudes, the relationship of God becomes like a transaction. It's based on works. In other words, um, John is saying you can have confidence from abiding in him, but these attitudes take it to, if you're righteous enough, maybe God will let you abide with him one day. Becomes like a transaction. You obey to earn an identity. And I just want to make clear, that is not what John is saying. That's not what he's saying. John is not saying, hey, try really hard to be a good person and I hope you make it. That might be every other religion in the world. It's not Christianity. And there's a secret hiding here in plain sight regarding how one is to abide. And it's essential. So, we're, we, we've started our process, okay? We, there's this ultimate moment Jesus is going to come back. We want confidence for that, and we can't have it. How? It starts with abiding, absolutely. Staying connected to Christ based on what you believe, based on what you practice. Those are evidences that you're abiding. But there's more we need to see, and here's where we get into that second way we build confidence. It's that your abiding has to flow from your identity, It has to flow from your identity. It's essential. Again, 1 John 2.29. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, what? Has been, that's past tense already, has been born of him. Confidence comes from abiding. Abiding is seen in what you believe and practice. But abiding has to flow from who you are already are it has to it can't be done otherwise abiding you see is a result of identity not the other way around you abide based on who you already are you don't abide so that one day you can become and this makes all the difference in fact john says to practice righteousness at all in the present To abide in Jesus at all, something has to have already happened to you to make that even possible. And that something changes everything. It changes the way you practice righteousness. It changes why and how because it changes you. Did you see the key? You can only abide because you've been born again. You must be born again. What does that mean? I mean, I, you know, I was on uh, some websites trying to figure out what the street-level understanding of born-again Christian was, and that was a dumpster fire. Uh, 
It means you're a jerk, or uh, it meant all sorts of other strange concoctions. Let, let's pretend like we're starting over. Let's, pre- let's pretend like we've never heard this before. What does it mean to be born again? Um, is there a kind of Christianity that isn't born again? How would we know? Well, just, just think of this analogy given. Born again. Born? New life. New life. Someone wasn't there. They were created. They were born. I'll ask you here, what did you have to do with your birth? Did uh, you know, some angel come to you pre-conception and say, uh, hey, uh, when and where would you like to be born? Do you have a time of history preference? Type of family you'd prefer? Any distinctives about you you'd like to be there? Did you get to choose any of that? Did you have anything to do with how you were born? No. Of course, you had quite a bit to do with yourself after you were born. You ate, you pooped, you cried, you learned, you developed, you grew, you lived, because now you were alive. This is an analogy of what has to happen to you spiritually to be able to abide in Christ. To be able to live righteously in the way God is talking about here. To have any confidence. You must be born again. There has to be new spiritual life started in you that changes the very core of who you are. John loves to talk about this in his gospel. I want to show you one place where he does that. John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. And you see here the, the power of what we call the new birth and how it makes things different. John chapter 1, verse 10. John says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So just to review what we saw, as a whole, Jesus was rejected by his creation, people he had made. He was rejected by his own people, generally speaking, Israel. And yet, there are those who receive him. There are those who receive him. And John said they believed in his name. Remember we talked about this last week. His name, the definitions of who he is. He's the eternal God in the flesh, the promised king according to the scriptures. Believe in his name. Trust in what he's done. To all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gives this incredible privilege. Do you see what it was? To become children of God. You, you weren't God's child in this way before. You were an enemy. You were opposed to God. But something happens here where now everything's changed. Your identity has changed. There's new life. A new life has been born. And now you're God's child. And John wants to point something out here in verse 13. You have this new way of living, this new way of seeing life, this new way of seeing yourself, this new set of desires. But John makes it clear, these people weren't born because they believed. They believed because 
they were born. Look, did you see it? They were born not of blood. This wasn't humans doing things to make this happen. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. Look, your will is your choice. It wasn't ultimately their choice. Who did it? Three words at the end. But of God. God chose it. God did it. Later in John chapter 3, Jesus will describe this new birth in more detail. He talks about the Holy Spirit of God coming like wind. In the same way wind is invisible, it's uncontrollable, and yet its effects are unavoidable. The Holy Spirit comes on someone and their heart is changed. The light comes on, they see in a new way, and they wake up to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, and Jesus becomes irresistible to them. Believe, not just in knowing about facts, but trusting with the heart. And in comes a new set of desires, a new set of wants, and it's new spiritual life. To have confidence for that day when Jesus comes back, you have to abide in Jesus. Abiding stays connected. It shows itself in what you believe and what you practice. And that abiding, the only way you can have it, has to flow from identity. The identity of being born again so that you are now a child of God. And John knows that for you to abide and have confidence, you need to first see your identity and its implications. You have to see it. And so that's what John starts talking about in chapter 3, verse 1. So right in 29, he's talking about practicing righteousness. He starts pra- talking about practicing righteousness again in verse 4. But chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, is this interlude. It's almost an interruption where John celebrates the implications of being born again. And he's showing us the only way to abide is to have that flow out of the identity you already possess because you've been born again. So look at these three aspects I think we see um, to what it means to be born again, or three implications of being born again. The signs that you have been born again. Chapter 3, verse 1, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let's park on that first word for a moment. See. Um, a better translation might be, Behold. You know what it means to behold something? It's to gaze on it, to wonder at it, to ponder on it. It's the idea of truth coming alive. Truth coming alive. And this is an essential piece of being born again. It's when facts become flavor. It's when truth becomes treasure. And some of you know this very well. Some of you know this very well. There was a time in your life you'd heard about Jesus, you'd heard the ideas about Jesus, truth about Jesus, fine, whatever, and it was a nice add-on to your life. And then something popped, right? For some of you, it's recently. Something popped, and Jesus, instead of becoming something interesting, he becomes everything. He becomes life itself. Instead of being like, yeah, I should read my Bible, it's like, I, wa- I want to read my Bible. Instead of like, oh yeah, church, it's like, no, I need, I need church. Truth came alive. That's a picture of being born again. 
It's new life. That's new desires. Behold. Second aspect to being born again. You're humbled, deeply humbled by God's undeserved, lavish love for you in making you his child. 3-1. See what kind of what? Love. The Father has given, past tense, to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is not saying, hey, abide, and if you do that good enough, maybe one day you'll be his child. It's not what he's saying. The reason you can abide is because you're already celebrating that in the past, God has already made you his child, and nothing can take that away. And you are lavished with his love. It's behold, look at all this love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And you see what John said? And so we are. You're humbled by God's lavish love for you and what he did for you through Christ. God chose you while you were still a sinner. He chose you. He sent his son to die for you while you were still a sinner. And he sent his spirit to wake you up to the truth of Jesus while you were still a sinner. And when you trusted Christ, you were justified and made right with God, and you were adopted, bang, before you had any legacy of practicing righteousness. It's already done. To be born again is to have the truth come alive, and it's to be humbled by God's lavish love in making you his child. When these things happen, that changes how you obey and how you practice righteousness. You are no longer practicing righteousness to try to earn something from God. Are you kidding? You're obeying because you've already received something from God. He's loved you beyond belief. And when you taste that, that takes us to this third aspect of being born again. You have a new set of delights. You have a new set of desires. You love new and different things. Your heart has changed. 1 John 3, 1 to 2. In verse 1, John continues, The reason the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John is affirming to these people, despite these trials, we're God's children. And you remember, these churches had faced some conflict. Remember, there's a group that left, and that group had denied who Jesus is. So John refers to that. They don't know him. And as the group denied who Jesus is, guess what else they denied? They denied who Christians are. They denied who Christians are. Because, and, and so people who know Jesus, we know who Christians are. Christians know that despite our flaws, because of Jesus, Christians are children of God. And we are children of God now. Did you see what he called these churches in verse 2? What's that first word in verse 2? Beloved. What's that mean? You who are loved. And then John says, Beloved, we're God's children now, right now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So then, again, he's singing about the return of Christ. 
And we've already looked at the scope of, you know, in, in a sense what that will mean in judgment. But now look at what that will mean in beauty. What we will be, it's, it's not yet appeared yet. But when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Our father will make sure we look like our older brother. You know, we haven't yet seen the ultimate version of ourselves, right? I'm, I'm, there's some decent things about me. There's some fruit of God work, work in my life, but I'm still flawed. I'm still broken. I've got problems. You haven't seen the ultimate me yet. I haven't seen the ultimate you yet. When Jesus comes back, we'll see and we'll go, wow. Amazing. Beautiful. Because we'll be like him. Did you see, did you see how we become like him? How does it work? Because we will what? See him as he is. Why is it that way? Why is it that seeing transforms? It's because you're seeing beauty. You're seeing the treasure. You're seeing what you love. And as you meditate and see what you, on what you love, you're, you're changed. That's how this works. That's how this works. And it's already happening now, you guys. It's already happening now. One day we will look and behold our Savior and we'll be like him. And isn't that how we become like him now? We keep looking at him. Keep looking at his word. There's this biblical principle. It's all through the scriptures. You will look like what you look at. You will look like what you look at. You will become what you behold. You'll become what you behold. That's why he says, hey, behold the Father and his love for us so we can become children of God. Behold, you'll become like that as you look at Christ. But there's a, the negative aspect to that too, right? You, you know I don't mean physically. It's not like I can, can stare at a good-looking 43-year-old and become good-looking. It doesn't, doesn't work that way, sadly. It's deeper than that. What you meditate on affects you. You become like what you behold. Come on, a little illustration of this. If you're reading news articles constantly, all day, on Facebook, what does your heart become? Angry and anxious. You're becoming like what you behold. I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't know what's going on. I'm not saying don't have righteous concerns. But is it changing your, your heart? Here's a more powerful, more extreme example. What happens when you watch pornography? Your brain actually gets new neurological pathways. It corrupts you and how you see other people. You become like what you behold. You behold Jesus. You become like Jesus. And so all this takes us to this realization. When you're born again, you get a new sight. You, the truth comes alive. And you're overwhelmed by God's love for you in Christ. And you have this view of Christ as your treasure now, which means you're going to become like him. And that's why John says in 1 John 3, 3, look, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You can't honestly see Jesus 
and not hope in him. You can't honestly see Jesus and not want to purify yourself to be like him. It's impossible. Because if you don't want it, John says, you haven't seen him. He's too good for you to see him and not be overwhelmed. And the new birth means, by God's spirit, you've seen. And so you want to be wholly his. You want to love what he loves at all times. So we're talking about that moment when Jesus comes back and confidence. Confidence comes from what? Abiding in him. You know you abide in him on the, based on a lot of things, you, you, but the truth you believe and your practice of righteousness. But John wants to make sure you know your abiding can only flow from your identity. And here we're talking about being children of God by the power of the Spirit of God. You're born again, which means the truth has come alive for you. You've seen a new beauty, which means you behold, you're humbled by God's overwhelming love for you and choosing you, adopting you through Christ. And it also means you have a new set of desires. You have a new set of things that you love. And now we can understand. Confidence comes from abiding. Abiding flows from identity. And your identity will show itself in your practice. Your identity will show itself in your practice. Here we want to consider themes from chapter 3. Verses 4 to 10. Even as you survey these verses, as we read the text in the beginning, you see this continual repetition of the word practice. Practice, 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 practice. Six times in these verses, 4 to 10. The issue for evidence that you abide is what you practice. How you live comes from what you love, which shows who you are, and it adds up to your lifestyle. We're talking about your normal, what you practice every day, day in and day out, what you love, what you want, what you seek, what shows itself in your life. When you abide in Jesus because of your identity in Jesus, you'll practice righteousness, and this is foundational for our confidence and assurance. Why is this so important? Why is practicing righteousness so important? Well, John tells us why it's so important because he says fundamentally there's two spiritual fathers in the world. There's two kinds of family resemblances. There's two kinds of heart inclinations, just two, just two. One is for those who are born again, they're children of God. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep sinning because he's born of God. So the idea here is that God gave you new birth. He's caused your new spiritual life by his word through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. You've become his child. And there's a family resemblance. The resemblance is not physical. It's character. It's desires. You want to be like your father. You become like him in what he loves. And you can't keep sinning. Now some of you are thinking, have mercy. I can't keep sinning. And I'm thinking that too. <laughs> I keep sinning. 
And I just want to emphasize here, there's no way John is talking about perfection. Let me give you two pieces of evidence for that. In chapter 1, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we lie. The beautiful thing about that word we is it includes John. And he's the apostle. So the apostle tells you, I still sin. Moreover, in this chapter, John said, when Jesus returns, then we'll be just like him. Which means right now, we aren't yet just like him. Which means right now, we still sin. It's clear what John means. It's clear what John means. He's not saying believers never sin once they become Christians. The key word, again, is what? Practice. Practice. Going after something because you want it. A new set of desires shown in how you live. Look at verse John, chapter 3, 6 to 7. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You're not righteous based on your practice. You're righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus. Can I get a big resounding amen from all of you in your living rooms around Southern California? Okay, Jesus' righteousness is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in that way, you are righteous as he is. It's the only way John could say this. But the evidence that you are righteous as he is, that you have a real and true faith in Jesus Christ, is that you are practicing righteousness in your life. You're growing in it. You want it. And John says, if you've seen him, if you've really seen him, and you've known his love, of course, of course, you'll love what he loves. You'll pursue him. So that's the first spiritual father in the world. That's that first spiritual DNA. It's a love for God and his ways. It's loving what he loves and practicing righteousness according to his word. But there's another spiritual DNA out there. There's another spiritual father you see it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, and also verse 8. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the who? The devil. Why would we say that? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You're going to follow your father. You're going to follow your father. You're going to have the family resemblance. God, our father's resemblance is righteousness. The devil's resemblance is rebellion. That's what lawlessness gets at, rebellion. The devil sets himself up against God and says, I do what I want for myself. I'm my own authority for right and wrong, truth and falsehood. Functionally, I will be my own God. And that's what those who practice sin are doing, is it not? I'll do what I want. And it's, the, it's, the, it's a satanic resemblance. It's rebellion against God, his character, and his ways. So that's why what you practice is so important. You're showing the evidence, it's the evidence of who you are, of who your 
spiritual father is. That's why it's so essential, and that's why it's the source of our confidence. I'm not born again based on how great my righteousness is. Being born again was before I was ever righteous. But being born again gives me Christ's righteousness as a gift, and it gives me a new heart to love righteousness, and so my practice shows whether or not I'm born again. And in that it shows I'm born again, that gives me confidence for the day of Christ's return. So we see here, friends, and we need to be careful, but it's true, isn't it? A Christian without transformation is a contradiction. A Christian without transformation is a contradiction. Look again at 1 John 3, 7 to 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. Okay? Don't be deceived. If you're a Christian, you can't live just however you want. You can't live the way you used to before. If you're a Christian, you can't keep practicing what God has come against in his word. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous in Christ. Is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. And look at this next sentence. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christian, remember Jesus came for you to save you from your sin. He saves you from the penalty of sin. Yes, you're forgiven. You're forgiven because he paid for your sins on the cross. But he also died to save you from the power of your sin, which means it no longer owns you. You're no longer a slave. That means you no longer want it in the same way. You want righteousness instead. So we're talking about real transformation. Did you see? The only way to live a righteous life is to be born again. The abiding has to flow from identity. But that means if you are born again, you will practice a righteous life. You will. So I'm going to ask a really important question here. So maybe the question some of you are asking right now. Why are Christians, if they're born again, so often a total mess? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. I have a few thoughts on this. Number one, people start in different places. People start in different places. Based on how God has made you, based on where you were born and the situations of your life, we can start in different places if you imagine the idea of a deep hole. Maybe somebody's born again at two feet down. They look pretty good. They have a good uh, personality put together. They, they've had a, a certain kind of uh, environment they were raised in. Maybe somebody starts two feet down. Maybe somebody else starts 12 feet down. That person starting at 12 feet down, they were in the hole. They were a mess. They were horrid. They get born again. They work. They grow. They practice. But maybe even after years, now they're, uh, now they're only 10 feet down. Or, or now they get up to five feet down. It doesn't mean they're not growing. I mean, they start in a different place. That's something to take into account. Christians are still sinners. They still have problems. Number two, God is patient. Some, in some ways, people will change very slowly. God is patient with us. There have been things in my life, some things uh, change quickly in following Christ, and other things, it's hard. It takes time. And God is patient with us, isn't he? Just because you change slowly doesn't mean you are changing. So people start in different places. God is patient, but let's be really careful not to use either of those two things as an excuse. 
There is another aspect to why people who claim to be Christians are so often a mess. And here's the hard answer, according to John. They're not Christians. If someone has no desire to love God, no desire to obey him, no evidence of transformation, no love for his word, well, these, uh, these pictures of uh, assurance in 1 John, if somebody doesn't believe the truth about Christ or have an honest evaluation of their sin or have a practical love for God's people or show their love for God and a desire to obey him, right, those are the foundations of assurance. And if three of those are a black hole, non-existent, you don't want them, you don't care about them, you're not pursuing them, There's reason to question. There's reason to doubt. There's reason to not have confidence that you're his. 1 John sums it up, doesn't he? 1 John 3.10. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. It's clear. It's evident. It's plain. It's obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, let's conclude. We imagine that day when Jesus comes back. Imagine that day when you stand before him. Are you ready for that? Will you shrink in shame? What will you look to on that day? As I, as I was imagining this, I got to tell you, I w- as I imagine that day, I will not be looking to my deeds. No. I'll be looking at my Savior. I'll be relying on what he's done for me. That'll be my claim. Jesus, you know what you've done for me. But hopefully my deeds will show that abiding in him is what I've been doing all along. I abide in him because of what he'd done for me. Hopefully my new identity showed itself in new practice. Look, there's nothing in me that's anywhere close to perfection. I could never say, God, I'm right with you based on my deeds. Never. Never. I can only say, God, I'm right with you based on Jesus' deeds. But to the extent that that is true in my life, it'll show itself, right, in practice. That new desires are evidenced by new behaviors. So are you born again? Have you been born again? I hope some, for some of you listening right now, you're like, God, give me new birth, and it happens this very moment. I hope that happens this very moment where the truth comes alive, where you realize you were a sinner, you were lost, and now Jesus is precious, and you want him. For those of you who are born again, are you purifying yourself as he is pure? Are you walking in the light as he is in the light? What's what's one thing the Spirit's bringing to your mind right now, and the Spirit is saying, that's not practicing righteousness? What is it? Offer that up to him. Because you are humbled by God's amazing love for you in Christ. Put that into practice in your life. Look to Christ. Press into him. How do we have confidence? Abide in him. Cling to the truth. Stay connected to the person of Jesus. Practice righteousness because that flows out of the identity he's already given to you. Church, may your heart sing at the love of your Father. May that transform your heart and your practice. And may you have confidence that when he comes, he'll look to you as a sister and a brother. And you'll be welcome in his presence. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it is an amazing thing to think of Jesus coming back and to tremble at the reality of who he is and what he knows. Uh, But we thank you that we can actually have confidence that those who trust in your son have new heart, new desires, new identity. We're your children. And because of your great love for us, we can walk in your character. We can have uh, your resemblance in our lives as we love you and we love your ways and we live that out. Lord, when we're caught in sin, when, we, when we're confronted, help us to confess our sins knowing we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And make us vigilant, God, not to earn our salvation, but because we're saved, to purify ourselves as you are pure. And we can't wait for the day when we see Jesus and we become like him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.